And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me today is Dr. H. David Sharinga. And uh, David, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, Dan, it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you for having me. I had never heard of your name before. We've never met in person, but a mutual friend of ours recommended that we get in touch, and that friend is Jerry Wiss, and we have some of his content on the network. And so um, he also suggested what we talk about today. But before we get to that, maybe you could just briefly describe what you do, David, uh, a little bit of your background, and then we'll get to our question. Well, um, I've been a teacher slash pastor my whole ministry, actually. I did serve in some churches, too, so I've been a pastor, um, but also a seminary professor and headed a post-secondary school for for prisoners. Um, And now I am the director of uh, North Star Ministry Consultants, which guides um, nonprofits and churches um, and leaders. And I'm doing a lot of writing and translating and stuff these days. So I I come from the Reformed uh, tradition. In fact, my ancestors go back to uh, the time of the Heidelberg Catechism um, in the in the Dutch Reformed Church. Oh, that's neat. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I, I I wouldn't call myself a you know a great scholar or anything like that. Uh, just because I have degrees, I, I really see myself as a theologian for the person in the pew. Um, that's that's I'm a practical theologian uh, in a technical sense and yeah. in what it says. I I want the I want the faith to be alive and meaningful to the everyday Christian. Yeah, you know, um, the older I get, the more appreciation I have for the practical side. And uh, I didn't know you were going to say that, but I, I'm not surprised. That That's that's really neat. Um, I do want to say you did um, earn your doctorate at the Theological University of Kampen, is that it, in the Netherlands? In Kampen, yes. Kampen. And that was in homiletic, homiletics and practical theology. Um so that really helped to, um, to stimulate um, my first love for practical theology. And also what I mean by that is sometimes practical theology is like, oh, pra- practical in the sense of pragmatic, what mm-hmm. works. That's not what we're talking about from a biblical point of view. Gotcha. Practical theology is how does God's Word intersect into our life today? Hmm. Very helpful. And how do we apply that word to today? Um, and so this interaction between your theology and the technical word is the praxis is what that is about, not just because so much of American thinking um, from a Christian point of view, and not, not, not to in any way um, say anything negative about anybody, but a lot of it is pragmatic, you know, whatever works. And that can get the church into a lot of trouble. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, today we're going to explore basically a concept that's in the Scriptures, although the Word isn't found in the Scriptures, and the Word is antithesis. Um, we kind of have a gut feel that it's really important. Um, and again, the Word's not in the Bible, but the concept is. And I'm wondering, what is meant by this word antithesis? <laughs> Wow, that is a great question and a big question, and I think 
probably one of the most important questions today, Dan. Um, antithesis, you're right, that particular word is not in the Bible, like the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but certainly the concept is there and the, and the truth is there from cover to cover. And um, throughout the Bible, we read about the light piercing the darkness, right? That's the antithesis, the difference between the light and the darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Um, what we believe as Christians and what Jesus did on the cross and God's plan for his elect throughout history is antithetical to the world, to Satan, to the forces of darkness. And that concept has a tremendous importance for how we view the world, ourselves, and God, which is, of course, then your philosophy. Yeah, that's very helpful, and it nails it. Um, the Lord uh, taught us that we're to be in the world, but not of it. Um, mm-hmm. Does that does that somehow tie into this? Yeah, it is very much um, to be in the world and not of it. You know, um, the, the church has always um, had to struggle a bit, and it's probably a good struggle. Um, sometimes we think, well, that, you know. Christians can be so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good, right? (laughs) Right. But, you know, I don't think Christians should be so earthly-minded that they're no heavenly good. Amen. And so um, it's a tension that we live in between the times, you know, to be in this world, to be involved in this world, to bring the gospel to this world, but not to be overcome by the world. And, and I have a, you know, a few things we can talk about that as we go. Um, so we have to be in the culture, but not overcome by the culture. And that, that can be tricky and can only be accomplished with the power of God. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And um, right away my mind goes to um, the Christian that, um, let's say, let's use the phrase overachieves on this thing of not being in the world. And and the way it gets fleshed out practically is is he retreats from the world. Mm-hmm. So that that's right. not a good thing either. No, that's that's something the Reformation, um, you know, with, with, with Calvin and all that, uh, were totally against. And, of course, it was um, indicative in those days of monasteries, right? Oh, yes. The idea was that um, you would have a, a, a religious life, and what that meant in those what that meant before the Reformation was that you would withdraw from the world and live in the monastery and simply, um, not simply, but you know, to read the Bible and pray every day and so forth. Um, but of course, uh, as uh, history has shown, they brought all their sins with them into the monastery. Um, Calvin was very strong in the Reformers that all of life is religion. Um, and now we're getting into worldview and where the antithesis starts to really make a difference. The fact is that not only people who are pastors and Bible teachers are doing religious work, and I'll explain more of that um, mm-hmm. if we'd like, but all of God's children are to be engaged in religious work. And what that means is that we do all of our work to the glory of God. And so, in a sense, 
It is just as holy and sacred of an occupation to stack shelves in a big box store, to drive a truck, as to be a minister or to be a theology professor. Mm -hmm. Because we don't withdraw from the world, we are engaged in the world as God's servants. And every Christian has a calling, and that calling is to, whether they eat or whether they drink, to do all to the glory of God. Mm, mm. So, yeah, sometimes when things get, and then in a more contemporary model, too, sometimes when things get, the culture just falls to pieces like it is today, there is a great temptation to just withdraw. Sure. You know, and to find a little corner that's safe. Mm -hmm. And... And maybe some have to do that, Dan, you know, to survive. I don't know. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, sometimes in the in the natural world when a hurricane comes through or a tornado, it is prudent, <laughs> you know, right? It's, it is prudent to find a, a safe room uh, to weather the storm and then go back out and work again. And so I said That is a great, great analogy. I won't forget that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when the hurricane hits, you don't go out there and try to take it on. You have to right. take cover for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Just for a little while. But, um, yes. But the other extreme is becoming so engaged with the world that you slowly, imperceptibly become the world. And that's what can happen with churches and so forth, where they are so eager to, you know, to reach people and connect with people and maybe to be liked, you know, in the world, mm-hmm. um, that all of a sudden the world has changed them rather than they changing the world. Yeah. The, the, that's the other extreme of withdrawal. Huh? The, the withdrawal, we should have critical engagement, mm-hmm. not withdrawal or accommodation but critical engagement. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely, definitely. Now, we got into this talking about uh, the definition of of antithesis, what it meant, and uh, you mentioned light piercing the darkness and how that the Christian faith is is really antithetical to the forces of darkness. Um, Yes. Can can we probe a little bit more of uh, how this antithesis is to be maintained uh, while we also, it's not an either-or, it's, it's a both-and, while we, we remain engaged in the world, but not lose our savor. We, 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 we must remain salty, it seems. Well, absolutely, and you just touched on the greatest uh, and most important issue of the Church in the world today, and for Christians in the world today. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, um, I think we're both fans of his, is the one who developed, um, in a significant way, what Christian worldview means for the modern age. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying for the modern age, because sometimes people think that he created the idea of worldview. Well, he did it. Calvin Mm -hmm. was a worldview guy. You know, he started orphanages, schools, hospitals, and even had a Christian sewer system in Geneva, you know? (laughs) Um, And so, he, they, the reformers understood that all of life was for God, but Modernity has its own challenges, and Kuiper really took that bull by the horns and started to articulate that for us. And so he came up with two concepts to try to keep that balance that you and I have been talking about, Um, and that is the antithesis, that we are different, that we have a different set, a different code, a different way of going about life. But then he also talked about common grace. Now, that's a bit 
more of a controversial term, and I'm not completely comfortable with it, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. But the idea of common grace was that God is not only above the culture, but also in providence in the culture. Sure. And so there are things that a complete pagan unbeliever can do that appear good for humanity. And they can um, uh, come up with, uh, you know, helpful ideas. And also that God has contained total depravity um, in a particular sense that not every man out there or ourselves is as wicked as they could be all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, and it reminds me also of the uh, uh, concept that our Lord told us that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Correct. That, that's exactly where that comes from. And so the idea... If you had only the antithesis, of course, you would have complete seclusion. You would build a high wall and not let any of that bad stuff, um, you know, infiltrate you. But common grace tells us that there are points of contact out there. Mm -hmm. And there, there are things that are being said and done that are good, perhaps for the wrong reason, likely for the wrong reason, but can be redeemed, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, that That's why I have trouble with the term common grace, because, you know, it's a grace that doesn't save, you know. That's right, that's right. So I'm more comfortable talking about God working in his providence. Yeah which we know is ultimately for the good of his elect. Oh, yeah, and that happens. Uh, you, you could have, let's say, you could have, um, inconsistently, you could have an atheist who happens to be a medical doctor and just likes saving lives. <laughs> and, and I think that's an example of God and his providence showing kindness to mankind through this vessel who doesn't even acknowledge him. Well, that's right, and that, that's, that's what brings us back to the absolute sovereignty of God, Hmm. and that I believe he is working through everything, even through those who are not his elect children, he's working through them ultimately for the good of his children and Mm -hmm. to his own glory, huh? Yes. So we, um, and and of course we don't assume anyone is reprobate or something, we treat all people as children or potential children of God, but the, the big picture is that God is working through all of it, and so um, we can learn much um, from people who are not Christians, but then that brings us back to worldview again. We have to understand that when there is overlap of appearance of overlap with truth or good between the world and the Christian, we have to understand that um, they still come from a different philosophical root, a different worldview, because mm-hmm. um, a, a, a worldview has has to do with your um, your presuppositions um, about God, about the place of man, and about this world, and so that's where it gets kind of tricky. And that is to be able to work in terms of understanding what our presuppositions are and those of the world. And once again, that is the heart of the antithesis, mm-hmm. that we have different presuppositions 
and suppositions about life. Am I, am I making that oh, clear yeah. enough? I, I think so. And, and as I hear you think about that, I, my mind goes back to a, to a famous theologian from the, from the Dutch, uh, and that's uh, Van Til, who, who seemed to talk oh, yeah. about presuppositions. And I think that concept is, is so very valuable. Well, it really is, because you, you have to fall back on presuppositions, or I should say rest in what are the presuppositions. That's the, just for the listeners, that's, that's the ideas that you have even before you start talking. Yeah, know? exactly. That, that's that. And because without establishing the presuppositions, then an argument or discussion just becomes circular rationalism. Yeah. And it just becomes circular reasoning. You have to get at what are the presuppositions driving that particular rational discussion. Yeah, you know, that, that helps, too, when, uh, when we hear all the noise we hear. Right now we're hearing a lot of noise um, in, the, in the political sphere, and uh, a lot of it is worthless noise. But um, there are some basic assumptions people bring with them to the debates and if these assumptions are wrong, then it's likely that their conclusions will be wrong, unless they just happen to stumble upon the conclusion. Well, if I can just follow up on that, because your listeners, I think, really can relate to that. When they can hear about some event, like at the border or something like that, yeah, um, they can read four different newspapers and get four different perspectives. Right. Be- you know, because the person's presuppositions drive them to gather certain facts and interpret those facts in a certain way, um, it depends on your presuppositions and how you connect the dots, right? You bet, you bet. absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, I want to, uh, you mentioned something that was really important to me, and that is uh, a practical theology. That, that basically means applying the truth of God to the to the world around us, at least that's how I understand it. Um, let, let's have an example. You you were involved, or you are involved in some work with the penal justice system in your home yes, state. I still am, yeah. Oh, I still are. Okay, in your home well, I state. To mention, yeah, I'm a commissioner for the for the for the governor <laughs> on the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission, and we're seeking to overhaul the public defense system for poor people. Um, that's a whole other story. But, yeah, I have, I have a real heart for people who, who, um, who go to prison. Well, I, I think that's a, a big piece of this discussion today because uh, here we are. We're talking so far. We've talked in a little bit theoretical terms about applying God's Word. But here's now a real case. Uh, you're involved in this. You know about it. Can you take just a few minutes and describe it to our listeners? You want me to describe what's going on and what we're trying to fix? You bet. Okay, I, I you know, you, you, uh, you, you cut me off if it, if it gets uh, uninteresting. <laughs> but um, in in our constitution, people have the right to a fair trial. Um, you know, contrary to the way the media works, we're innocent until proven guilty. And then, if a person is charged with a crime. They are entitled to a fair and robust defense and advocacy. Um, and so um, if a person cannot, if you're not rich and can't afford your own lawyer, the state will uh, appoint a lawyer for you. 
But in Michigan and in many other uh, states, um, in Michigan, our public defense system was and is just horrible. We're 47th worst in the nation. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeking... Oh, and by the way, the idea of due process... That's not merely a constitutional issue. That is a biblical issue. Ah, there's the time. Our Constitution was founded on the principles from the Bible. I strongly believe it and see it more every day. Mm. Due process. Just think of Matthew eighteen fifteen. Right? There's you a bet. process there for fairness. So anyway, um, uh, the Governor Snyder um, signed into, uh, appointed a, a commission, and I don't know somehow I got on it. And um, and so we are working, first of all, to establish standards for representation, mm. okay, for, for representation. And these are things like the, 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 public, the, the public defender who is appointed to, to advocate for this poor guy needs to have the education and experience to handle the case. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. An, another standard, you, you won't believe this, another standard is that... They must have, the, the, the lawyer and his client must have a private space to meet. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's that kind of basic thing. Oh, yes, and the public defender <laughs> must be at the hearing, you know? I sure. mean, it's, I, you don't want to get me started on this. Yeah, but this is important. Th- this fleshes out what we're talking about. This is great. Well, people think that everybody in prison must be there because they deserve it, Okay. But it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people who are in prison who are either innocent because they just did not have any kind of advocacy to make a case for themselves, and there are many, many more who are over-sentenced. And 95%, I think this is in the whole country, but 95% of the criminal cases are resolved not by being judged by a jury of your peers, because they don't like to do that, it's too expensive, mm-hmm. but it's through plea bargaining. Mm-hmm. And plea bargaining, they want the person to think that they're getting a good deal, so what they'll do is they'll list ten things that they could charge them with, and they say, oh, you better take this plea deal, because um, you know, otherwise we're going to go to trial with this, and you're going to spend the rest of your life. You know, So they, they, they actually frighten people into taking these plea gotcha. deals. But had they had a good lawyer, maybe they they would have gotten a lesser sentence based on the crime that they committed, you know. Yeah, that's exactly. I'm so glad you went here. And unfortunately, we got only about three minutes left. Okay. Well, we are delighted that the governor just signed um, into law, or will be today, um, $84 million for us for next year. And what we do is we, the commission is providing money to the counties to adhere to the standards so they have mm-hmm. no excuse. And then we audit that, and we can enforce them to make sure that throughout the state of Michigan, the poor are treated well. And I'll just stop this with one quote from Amos. And Amos says, It is an abomination if the poor do not have access to the courts. Amen. And and that's what's in my heart when I do this. Now, everybody else on the commission are judges and lawyers. I'm, <laughs> I'm the only <laughs> theologian who represents the general public, but um, that's how I see it. I think this illustrates perfectly what we've been talking about. And uh, you have the antithesis. You also have the providence of God, what Kuiper would call 
perhaps not perfectly, uh, common grace, but but it, it's being played out here. Now, really quick, one minute left, new book, What All Christians Believe and Why, A Contemporary Guide to the Historic Faith. Uh, how long has that book been out? Um, actually, it just came out yesterday. Um, it, right now, it's in the Kindle edition, so they can get it very inexpensively um, into their digital libraries. Um, it's not a lengthy book, but it's a it's a it's a summary. It gets into details about the basics of the Christian faith: who is God, what is salvation, those kinds of basics. But then it blossoms into a worldview Christianity. How do you take these basics of faith, and how do you translate them into your everyday life? So, it's, yeah, what all Christians believe and why, and um, probably one of the foremost Calvinist theologians in the country, John Frame, wrote a foreword to it. So I, I hope that it's helpful, um, that people can see it, because I think it would be excellent for uh, discipling young Christians and new Christians especially, but maybe for anyone who wants to review, have just sort of a helpful review of what the faith is about. Well, David, you've been very patient with me. I, I'm sorry that we uh, had to go all over the lot here today, as it were, in terms of subject matter, but it was just a natural progression, so thank you for your patience with me. Today we've been talking with Dr. David Sharinga. At the end, we mentioned his new book, What All Christians Believe and Why, A Contemporary Guide to the Historic Faith, and we also covered this important concept in the Scriptures, that of antithesis, the light piercing the darkness, uh, how that uh, the Christian faith is antithetical to the forces of darkness, and yet in the providence of God, uh, he requires us even to have an effect on our culture. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Um, I'm just uh, amazed and gratified that there's a program like yours out there to talk about these essential issues, Dan. So, um, yeah, God bless you, and thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.